Notice the title of the message this morning, How Do You Know What Love Is? How do you know what love is, and what is the answer to that question? Okay, that was incredibly weak. Notice this with me, the title at the top of your page. How do you know what love is? What is the answer? Okay, that was good. Notice it. How do you know what love is? It's to see Christ. If you're wondering what, you know, the world is confused about love. Um, I think it's Tina Turner that's asking, what has love got to do with it? And, you know, there, there's, I mean, there's a myriad of songs about this, that what is love and how does it look and how does it work? And so often, it's simply a distorted view of what God has truly given us. The world often thinks that eros or the erotic love, the sexual love, is the kind of love that, that is most important. When we come to see there's so much more than any type of sexual love that there is a glorious foundation of the great love of God that causes all things, even that love, to be perfect and whole. So I want us to see this, and we come from uh, our study last week. Our study last week was entitled God's Children and the Devil's Children, and why, as we're going to be reminded here in just a moment, we, we, this letter is helping us to evaluate our own lives. And we recognize that this letter is written to churches. It's written to people who are going to church. And yet it is still, you say, well, yeah, that's talking about the devil's children. That's outside the church. No, this is talking about the devil's children inside the church. This is talking about those who may very sadly, may very merrily be self-deceived. And so that's what John is concerned about. And he's writing about this so that we might be tested. Notice there in your review, 1 John is all about true, genuine, saving faith. True, genuine, saving faith versus fake, self-deceived religion. You see, religion will take you merrily to hell, whereas saving faith will bring you to the cross. It brings you to the cross of Christ. It brings you to the place of the execution of the creator of the universe where he comes and his son lays down his life that we may live. And so 1 John being concerned about this, the difference between faith and religion, notice this, John presents multiple tests by which one can evaluate if they have true saving faith. You see, number one, do you recognize your own sinfulness or do you think that you're righteous? Or do you hide your sin? Do you, do, you, do you conceal it and hold it back? Whoever conceals his sin will not be forgiven, Psalms tells us. But the one who opens and reveals his sin, the one who confesses his sin, the one who recognizes his sin can be forgiven. Number two, do you recognize Christ for who he is? He's called the advocate. In, in 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. The great advocate that can come. Your great spiritual attorney that can come and intercede for you. He's the advocate. The only advocate. Number three, do you obey Christ's commands? 
He's saying that if we do not obey Christ, then we are not Christ's. And you say, well, what are his commands? Well, that's an important part of obeying them is to learn of him, to learn the instructions that he gives in our lives. Number four, we see this one, and this is part of our message today, is do you hate others? John cyclically circles back on each one of these as we go, and it gets deeper and deeper, as we'll see this morning. But in chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, he's saying, if you hate others, you do not know God. Number five, do you love the world instead of God? Are you consumed with what's new and what's popular? Are you consumed with the pleasures of this life? Are you consumed with either the riches or the basic things? You can love the, love the world and not be wealthy. You say, that's just for the wealthy people. I knew they shouldn't have built and bought that yacht. Well, wait a minute. The poor can be in love with this world as well as the rich can be in love with this world. Number six, do you stay with Christ and his church or do you leave? You see, that's what he's talking about in chapter 2, verse 18. He talks about what about those who used to be in the church that left the church? He's showing that though they went out from the church to show that they were not of the true faith of Christ. They were the recipients of religion, not the recipients of the Redeemer. Number seven, Do you practice sin or do you practice righteousness? That was last week. We talked about what is the habit of your life? Do you gravitate and stay in the sin or do you, are you on the upward path of sanctification in Christ where Christ is winning the battles of sin in your life? Love of the world and the love of sin is not ruling over you. I think every Christian needs to consider that question. Notice this statement. The true church has always maintained that God's word clearly sets forth basic standards of both belief and what? Behavior. Behavior. So you need to believe the right thing. You need to believe the words of Christ. And you need to obey the words of Christ. So it does have to do with belief in doing. Now, let me remind you that our obedience is not what saves us. Only the blood of Christ saves us. Only the sacrifice of Christ and our faith in him is what redeems us, is what cleans us, is what saves us. But what John is showing us is what does the evidence point to on whether or not you have true saving faith? Do you look like the world, smell like the world, act like the world, and do you love this present darkness that is fading away? Or are your mind, is your mind and your heart and your actions in your life set on the things that are eternal, on the things that will never fade away? There is the difference between true saving faith and damning religion. Do you believe the words of Christ? Do you obey the words of Christ? This points to whether you know Christ. Now we come to 1 John chapter 3, verse 11 through 18. We'll look at it quickly this morning. Look what it says in verse 11. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning. Now he's already said that 
in, the, in chapter 2. He's saying it similarly in chapter 3. He's talking about the message, and you heard it from the beginning. It hasn't changed. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should what? Love one another. So here's the message you've been hearing all along is love one another. Verse 12. We should not be like Cain, who was, one, who, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. So this is talking about Cain and Abel, first two brothers born on the earth. Cain kills Abel, as we'll see in just a moment. Notice here with me, we should not be, verse 12, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Verse 13, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. It's the first time we've seen that phrase, abides in death. Usually it's talking about abiding in who? In Christ. Abiding in life. But here we see the juxtaposition of that. Notice whoever does not love lives in death. Verse 15, everyone who hates his brother is a, what does it say? Murderer. And you, know, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Verse 16, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers, verse 17, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. This passage is yet another great, stark reminder of the difference between the saved and the unsaved. This is yet another reminder for Christians to live out their Christian life. So it's not merely seeking to separate the sheep from the goats, the wolves from the sheep. It is also seeking to help the sheep remember what the sanctified life looks like. What the Christian is to do. So when you're wondering what are the commands of Christ and those who obey the commands of Christ, they are saved. Well, here we are studying the commands of Christ. We are studying what Jesus says is right. And much of this message is dealing with those who hate God's people and those who love God's people. Notice the repeating themes. And again, we've talked about the fact that John writes in a beautifully artistic way. This letter is a rather short letter, but it keeps weaving back and forth. You say, didn't we read that already? Didn't we study that already? That's part of the way John writes. And part of the repetition is what helps us. You know, any teacher will tell you repetition is important, right? Repetition is important. 
any music, I'm looking at Alex saying, yes, that's right. I, I mean, when you, when you think about music, how does Ben and Esther and Tommy and David and Francesca and I mean, all of those who play instruments here, how do they get good at doing that? They practice it. They repeat it. How do, how do Mr. Todd's students really get the message that he's seeking to drive home? He explains it, and then he comes around and he explains it again, and then he reminds them again. Maybe a few days later, they go back over it, back over it again, and that's how we get the message. Well, John knows that. And so he graciously, under the great inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Lord knows that we need to see it not only repeated, but listen to this, expanded as we go. So this comes, comes around in the, in the beautiful woven way of a, of a braid of rope with many strands that they're woven together and it's expanded as we go. And so we were going to see that once again in this section, as we will all the way to the end of the book. Notice in verse 11, False teachers haven't changed the gospel message. That's part of what John is saying. Look up there in verse, one, verse 11. It says, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning. It, it, he's saying this is, this is the same message. There's been false teachers that have come along, but they, the message has not changed. False teachers haven't changed the message. Christ's people love one another. There's no hyper-spirituality that exempts you from loving God's people. You know, there's some people who kind of think that. They think that their spiritual insights, they think that their sacrifices, they think that their gifts, they think that whatever it is that they have that, that makes them perhaps a little bit more elite than everybody else, their long maybe running experience of being in the church or something along those lines, there's any number of things that some people can come along and start to believe that they're exempted out from loving one another. And what the Bible says all the way through the Scripture is the massive importance that God's people love one another, that they care for one another, that they bear one another's burdens. And John is making that evidently clear in this. Look at verse 12 with me. In verse 12 we see, we should not be like Cain, and underline this, who was of the evil one. So here again, children of the devil versus children of God. Do you see that? Children of the devil versus children of God. We should not be like Cain who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous so verse 12 some who come to worship are of the devil do you remember with me that cain offered a sacrifice to god quote unquote he was showing up to church so we want john is wanting us to see here that while he was seeking to worship god he was actually of the devil and we see this when we see Cain. So in one part, we're being told we're reminded of Christ. In the other part, we're reminded of Cain. Or we're reminded of Cain in verse 12. And in verse 16, we're reminded of Christ. Do you see this? 
Look at 11, 14, and 16, and just fill this in. True Christians love others, specifically other Christians, or you put out there to the side, Christ's church. Who is Christ's church? Those are God's people. You can write all of that out to the side. Christians, Christ's church, God's people. We see that he is specifically, this is not just a generic call to love everyone, but we see unmistakably that John is separating it out and saying that those who love God love God's people. We're going to see why this is important in just a moment. Look at verse 11. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Skip down to 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love, underline it, the brothers. And then look at verse 16. By this we know love, that Christ laid down his life for us. And what does it say at the end? And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Scripture is clearly teaching us that those who love Christ love his brothers and his sisters, his people. So true Christians love others, specifically other Christians, but fake Christians say they love God but have hate for his people. Now get that, that whole line there. Fake Christians say that they love God but have hate for his people. Look at verse 12. We should not be like Cain who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Skip down to 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers, but underline this, whoever does not love, what did we say? Abides in death. Hmm. And then the very next verse, everyone who hates his brother, here it is, John is taking it even further like the Lord Jesus does. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him because he's still characterized by his murder. Do you know that we have had members of this church who were murderers? We have multiple people in the history of this church who have killed other people. Back in the 70s, my father shared the gospel with a man who was a hitman for the mafia. And the man became a Christian. Shortly after I came home from the mission field, Marcy and I came home from the mission field, we were here in the life of this church. And there was a little old guy that was here in the area asking for some help and some of our maintenance team reached out to him and helped him and they started to interact with him and he came by a few times just needing some water came by needing a little bit of food and we spent time with him as we got to know him we realized he could fix small engines like chainsaws and edgers and mowers and all those kinds of things and he was really good at it 
And we have all kinds of little engines to keep this place going. And we had, you know, several equipment sit, sitting there with tags on it. And we said, okay, well, knock yourself out. Why don't you fix a few of these? Well, he fixed them. And he said, you got any more? Before long, we started finding other things that this guy in his mid-70s could do. We shared the gospel with him. He became a Christian. He received the gospel of Christ, and he sat right here on this row for five years studying the Bible. We gave him a brand new Bible, but five years later, it was torn to shreds. The whole thing was highlighted. There were notes all over it. He was a murderer. He had spent time in a federal penitentiary. And yet Christ came. And he was no longer considered and called a murderer. He was called a child of God. Friends, you see, this passage is telling us that everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And so there are no murderers that are going to heaven. This is a murderer who has not been changed. We're going to see that more clearly in just a moment. But notice that fake Christians say they love God, but have hate for his people. In verse 16, 17, and 18, we see this beautiful truth that true, true Christians don't just say it, but do it. Notice in verse 16, by this we know that he laid down his life for us. Verse 16, by this we know that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, there's the question, this is the rhetorical question, how does God's love abide in him? What is the answer to that? It doesn't. Verse, 16, or verse 18, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And the inference there is not word or talk only. It doesn't say that in the Greek, but that's inferred. And how do we know that that's inferred? Let us not love in word. Does that mean that you shouldn't ever tell somebody that you love them? You shouldn't be kind in your words? No. The whole New Testament describes to us how to speak to one another in an encouraging way to bless one another with our words and psalms and songs and spiritual scriptures and, and, and words of encouragement. No, we, we know that we are to love in word and deed. But, excuse me, in word and, and talk. But now here we see it is saying indeed and in truth. And then finally, look at verse 16. This is really the theme for us as we come to the Lord's table. Do you want to know what true love is? Then look to Christ. Look at Christ. This is how you know. This is how we see what true love is. It is listen to this. It is not merely a, a human doing another work of, uh, to another human. It's not merely a sacrifice of one human for another. But what we see in this passage is the huge statement, actually, of a perfect Savior loving sinners. And that is where we see true 
unconditional love. Notice the contrast in these passages on page 2. There's a contrast between Satan's children and God's children. And we see this expanded in verses 12 and 14. Look in number 1 here. Satan's children murder God's children. The text is very clear. And sometimes it is absolutely literal. We know, and I, I have lived in a part of the world where God's children are often hunted down and murdered. That happens in many areas of the world, but in North Africa and in the Central Asia and in the Middle East, indeed, sometimes we see this in a very literal way. Satan's children murder God's children. In Genesis chapter 4, verse 2 through 8, we see the first homicide in all humanity. And it was between the first brothers ever born. Isn't that interesting? That one is righteously worshiping God and another one is self-righteously deceiving his own self about his worship, disobeys God, is envious, and then murders the righteous one. I would encourage you to write Psalm 1 out to the side of this. In Psalm 1, we see the beginning of the whole songbook, the whole hymn book of the Bible, the Psalms. When we, we, we begin this great body of, of, of revealing of who God is, the books of Psalms, the, all of the Psalms that are there, the first Psalm talks about the difference between the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked and that they are two very different things. So here we see that stark difference between Cain and Abel. And that should be instructive to us about the world that is around us, that there are some who know God and love God, and there are some who do not know God. We see that same imagery again at the cross, at the crucifixion of Christ. I want you to think about that with me. In our church service, I mean, excuse me, in our church building, we have one cross that is before you today, but let's remember that there were three, and that's why we have out in the, out in the lawn on Sheridan Street, we have three crosses. That's why all of our logos, it's, it's three crosses. It's Christ in the center and one who would receive him on one side and one who would mock him on the other side. So from the opening of the Bible to the middle of the Bible to the picture of redemption in Christ, we keep seeing this great separation between those who know God and those who don't. And when we come to Revelation, we see this great difference between the sheep and the goats. So the Bible is very clear in its call to us to evaluate carefully our lives. And John is very, very careful to us to help us to evaluate whether or not we know God. You see, Cain killed Abel simply because his deeds were evil. He was not redeemed. And his brother's deeds were righteous. He was envious. 
Look at John 8, 44. Jesus is speaking to religious Jews on this one, and he says, you are of your father, the devil. Can you imagine that? Jesus is teaching, I mean, you know, people who have a nice, dainty little view of Jesus and his teaching, you know, most of the modern world has a very um, harmless view of Christ and the teachings of Christ. And that is a very unbiblical view. This passage is so clear in how Jesus just turns around and he looks at the Pharisees that are following behind him and he says, you are of your father the devil and you do, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Isn't this the exact opposite of what 1 John 1, 5 says that in God, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Remember that? So here we see the opposite of that in John chapter 8. He says, he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. My dear friends, do not be children of the father of lies. Do not live your lives in the falsehoods of the world or in your own self-deception, in his deception. We're called to live in the truth. We're called to let the truth rescue us from the lies that are around us, that rescue us from the falsehoods that will take us to death. So Satan's children murder God's children, and we see this in their attitudes and in their actions. So look at that, number two. Satan's children hate God's children. They murder them, they hate them. Look at chapter three, or, uh, verse 13. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Now Jesus says that in multiple places, that Christians should not be surprised that a fallen world hates us. Now listen, you don't need to go out there and help them hate you. There are some Christians who gave up on, you know, loving and caring and having an open relationship with the world. They've said, well, they, Jesus said they'll hate me, so I'll just might as well go ahead and let them really hate me. And we, we act in an unchristlike, an unkind way to them. I'm not saying that, that we, we should not be kind and compassionate. We should be. I'm not saying that we should not be direct. I mean, Jesus was very direct at the appropriate moment and speaking the truth in love. He was helping them see that their father was the devil. And, but there are some people that seem to have it as their goal to make everyone hate them. You don't need to be odd for God. That's just strange. Stop it. Don't do that. Notice this, Jesus made clear that our heart is the issue. Our heart is the issue. When he was talking about these who hate, Satan's children hating, it's their heart that betrays them. It's their heart that causes them to be a murderer. And we see that hatred is equated with murder. Look at verse 13. Do not be surprised that the world hates you. In verse 15, Everyone who hates his brother is a what? A murderer. 
And you do not, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Look at underneath number two. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 21 and 22. By the way, this is the Sermon on the Mount. This is at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. He is laying out the grand message of the gospel to them early on. And he reveals to them that the heart is what God is, is looking for. Look what it says in verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Look at what Jesus says in verse 22. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, or raka, or empty head, you will be liable, underline it, to the hell of fire. And so part of this picture is, is that we're not to live in insults. We're not to live in hatred. We're not to live in anger with our brother and hate the people that are around us, namely the children of God. And if that is who you are, if that is the way you relate to them, you do not know God. Because that's what Satan's children do, not God's children. Number three, we see in verses 16 through 18 that Satan's children do not care about the needs of God's children. Satan's children, you you say, well, they must not. I mean, if they're willing to murder or hate, why would they care? Well, we see this, and, and remember with me that John is pulling this right down into the people that are sitting in the church. In verse 16, he says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. How opposite of that is verse 17. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him. Closes his heart against him. How does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So, notice it's the issue of the heart. Notice underneath the number three, if you can close your heart to a Christian brother or sister in need, you do not know God. I didn't say it. The Holy Spirit through the writer of John says that. God has called us to be his people who see the need of others. So the opposite of that is what we see in verse 16. It's the nature of true love. Look at number four. The nature of true love was shown by Christ's self-sacrificing death for others. He goes to the cross willingly laying down his life. Jesus said, I lay down my life. No one takes it from me. I lay it down. And if I lay it down, I will take it up. Why? Because I am God, the Messiah, who have come to be the sacrifice for your sins. See, this is the picture that God, this is God's love, not the world's love. The world is consumed with the physical, the world is consumed ultimately with self-satisfaction, Very often, and Jesus talks about this, many give 
to be recognized. Many give in order to feel better about themselves. That's one of the great problems that we see even in worldly giving, that very often it's all about virtue signaling. It's all about showing my self-righteousness. It's all about me feeling ultimately good about myself. And Jesus comes against that very hard. Jesus says, if you pray to be seen by others, if you do acts of righteousness to be seen by others, if you give, even if you serve others, in order to be seen by others, God will have no part of you. But when we humbly pray, when we humbly give, when we humbly serve others, because this is what Christ does. When our attitudes and our actions are not about us, but all about Him, it reveals that we know Him. You see, this is God's true love. Fill it in. It is an other-oriented love. There was nothing selfish about the picture of Jesus laying down his life to death. It was to death. He showed us that true love is in the service and rescue of others. Fill it in. It is a selfless love, not a selfish love. I want you to think about that with me because we see multiple places in the Scripture that as the time draws near for Christ to return, that the love of the world, the love of men and women, boys and girls, the love of the society around us will grow cold. And they instead will be called lovers of self. If you're a lover of self, you're not a lover of God. That's what John is saying to us. And if you're a lover of God, you're going to love his people. And I have to be honest with you, I remember um, there are so many things that my brother impacted my life on. My brother Mark Coleman is four years older than I am. I'm so thankful for those four years. He's, he's much older than I am, I used to say all the time. Um, <laughs> But my brother had a profound impact in my life. He went off to Georgia Tech and really started growing in the Lord. And he would come home, and I was really not living for the Lord as a, as a high schooler. And um, was very selfish and uh, very deceived. And my brother would talk with me, and he would, he would um, challenge me. And eventually, by God's grace, um, my senior year in high school, I began to walk with the Lord. Um, kind of coming back to the gospel that perhaps I had received as a child, um, I would believe, but had been really not where I needed to be. And, and as I started to grow in the Lord, there were several things that Mark said that helped me, but one of the things that I just remember that he just made it in an offhanded comment, he said to me, he said, you know, I'm learning to really love the church. He said, as I'm, as I'm growing in the Lord, and I'm, he was a member of First Baptist Church of Atlanta where Charles Stanley was preaching, and he said, as I'm growing in the Lord, as I'm hearing the Word of God taught, he just said, I'm learning to love the church. And he said, I don't think I loved the church. 
And I remember as a kid, I was starting to grow in the Lord, and I started thinking about my church in Tallahassee at FSU, and I started thinking, do I love the church? You know, some people run around in their Christian lives annoyed with the church all the time. They don't love the church. They're annoyed with the church. They're, they're looking to be offended by the church all the time. They either look at the individuals of the church that let them down, or they look at the programs of the church that let them down, or they, they kind of run through their life judge, constantly in judge mode against the church. I want to tell you that that's no way to live the Christian life. And this, this word is saying that. Do you love the people of God? Do you love your brothers and your sisters? Because what's interesting is, is that love covers a multitude of sins. So when you come to love Raphael, and you come to know him and, and care about him, the weaknesses of Raphael no longer overwhelm your heart. When you come to love the heart of the church, when you come to love the people, the saints gathered together, we come to stop judging it and stop criticizing it and stop being disappointed with it and we begin to celebrate it. And when we celebrate it, we find the great joy of Christ because Jesus said, I came to lay my life down for her. I love her. And I make her whole. Oh, how important it is. You see, so fill it in, number four, if you haven't already. This is to be our love. That we are to love God's people and love them sacrificially. So do you wonder what love looks like? Just see the cross behind me. That's the symbol of love. It's the symbol of a perfectly powerful, perfectly righteous God coming and laying down his life for Andrew's millions of sins. Now, what he's told us to do is to remember his love. He's told us to remember that. We need to remember that every day. We need to remember that in everything that we do, that, that we would remember his love, that remember his sacrifices. But churches are told to, on a regular basis, come together and observe the fulfilled, what I will call the fulfilled Passover. The Jews had Passover once a year, but what we see is that when Jesus comes, fulfills the Passover, he becomes the Passover lamb, he lays down his life for all of his children, and then he takes it up again in victory, showing us not only his love of sacrifice, but his power over sin and death. We are told to remember what he did. And we're told to remember it carefully. Do not take it for granted. That means we go, don't come to this table with sin harbored in our heart, unrevealed to God. 
We are called to come to this table. We are called to come to this wafer that represents the broken body of Christ and this cup which represents the blood that was shed for us, the sacrifice of a holy God for our sin. We're called to come to this with a heart saying, Lord, I remember that you died for my sin, my attitude. And so, remember what we said last week, that we are called to turn away from that sin. May we this morning come to the table. May we remember what he has done. Let me just say to you in our church, we, we take very seriously the scripture that says that if you do not know Christ and you observe in this, if Christ is not your Lord and Savior, or if you are living in rebellion against God, you are eating and drinking judgment upon yourself. This is heaping insult upon injury, and you are, are, are not advised to do that. You say, well, what's going to happen? Well, it may not be what happens today, though the Scripture says that it could be. It may be that it has heaped your condemnation before a holy God when you stand before him face to face taking lightly what he has done for you. So I want to carefully warn you of that and let that drive you to confess and forsake your sin. Let that drive you to leave it and to love him. Maybe because of this message in part, it, we, we should pay very close attention to the fact that this message is about hating some someone. Do you, do you have hatred for someone? I mean, Christian or unchristian? I want to call you to lay that hate down today. Maybe it's someone who hurt you or wronged you. Maybe it was last week. Maybe it was decades ago. Maybe it was someone very close to you or someone distant to you. I don't know. But I want to call you to, if the Holy Spirit is saying, you have hate in your heart, and I call you to lay that down. I want to call you to do that today. This may be a liberating moment for some in this room today. That through the love of Christ, through the grace of Christ, through the, the forgiveness that only Christ can bring, that he can empower you to forgive someone else. Maybe you've not thought very carefully about how you think of the church. Maybe you've not thought very deeply about whether you love the church for whom Christ died. And you're starting to see that that's a big deal to God. Maybe you would say today, Lord, forgive me for all the times I've not loved your people. All the times I've thought very highly of my opinion and very lowly of the body. I'm not saying we can't have opinions. I'm not saying we can't have disagreements. We certainly can. But do we love God's people? Do we love and protect the church? That's part of what we see here. 
Notice these key questions. One, have you personally received Christ as, save, as Lord and Savior of your life? I, I want to encourage you to receive Christ. You can turn from your sin and trust in Him as your only hope of forgiveness and acceptance by God. If you're in starting point and you've not come to that place, maybe right now as we pray that you would do that. Even as I'm speaking right now, that you would say, Lord, forgive me. I believe that you're the Christ. I believe that you're the sacrifice of God. Receive him. How about number two? Would you say that you have come to love or resent or despise true Christians? Some have come to love true Christians, God's people. And some, strangely enough, have come to resent them and despise them. That's what I've just been talking about. Always judging. We need to be very careful. Number three, when was the last time you gave sacrificially to a Christian in need? Do you give sacrificially to people in need? Some of you would say, I've never done that. I've, I've really never done that. I've really never sought out a Christian that needed help and, or been presented with that. And some of you might say right now, oh, I've been, I've been convicted to, but I never have. Well, maybe we need to ask, is your heart closed to that? Would you ask God to give you the opportunity? I, I'll just tell you, I, we, have to, we have to be before the Lord on this. Um, I remember I was discipling some guys at Florida State, five guys. I was um, a junior at Florida State, and there were five freshmen that God had given me to spend time with through Campus Crusade for Christ. And they all started growing in the Lord. Three of them actually prayed to receive Christ, and they were coming to our discipleship meetings. And we would meet on campus somewhere and, and read the Bible together and pray together, and I'd go through certain materials with them, and they were starting to grow in the Lord. And one guy showed up in my dorm room one afternoon after he'd been reading the Bible, and he said, Hey, Andy, um, I need 100 bucks. I said, What? He said, I need 100 bucks. You have it and I need it. I said, Brian, I'm not giving you a hundred bucks. And he said, I just read today. If you have something that I need and I ask for it, you got to give it to me. Now, of course, Brian's family lived in Fort Lauderdale on the water with a yacht behind them and, you know, everything else. He drove a BMW and I'm, I'm sitting there, I'm a preacher's son, whatever, working, you know, two jobs to stay at school. And I'm like, Brian, that's not what it's talking about. And he goes, no, I haven't. I'm telling you, I don't have any money right now. And I want, you know, you know, I don't know what he wanted to do, but he said, I need it. And, you know, he was testing me in that. You know, you don't need to run around and be the tester of that. You need to look for the opportunity to be the giver in that. There's some people that all they know how to do is just go test that. 
But when you find the joy of being the giver, you're finding the joy of Christ because that's what Christ is. He's the great giver. Amen? Amen. Let's stand together for prayer.